0: Hello, hello, this is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Tim and Mike Duffy. They are brothers, twins, producers extraordinaire, and they are the co-founders of a company called Ugly Brother. Tim spent a good part of his career on the buyer side at Spike TV and Mike on the seller side for companies like Zodiac and T Group. Together they are unstoppable and their company is doing great right now. They had a show on Spike that just wrapped. They have a show coming up on Comedy Central. And they have a new series with Emeril Lagasse that's going to be amazing, premiering on Amazon September 2nd. They're great guys. I love them. They're also refreshingly honest and to the point where you might be a bit surprised. All right. So I've got the Ugly Brothers here.
1: Thank you. Each There's one more ugly than the next. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> There's
1: only one Ugly Brother.
0: Is that like the by the end of the podcast, I'll know who?
1: Well it's actually no one will ever actually know (laughs) but it's uh we 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 started the when we started the company we were like our cousin actually came up with the name it's amazing and uh it definitely involved some intoxicants one evening and he was (laughs) like hey bro you guys should call your company ugly brother (laughs) and we went that's freaking genius actually not ugly brothers, ugly brother, to right. keep everybody questioning.
0: Right. And is this like, are we over it at this point in terms of meetings and stuff? Like people just know you guys, ugly brother, but they still like love to talk about it and it's a thing? Is it still a thing?
2: It's definitely still a thing. I'm going to ride it. Well, we, look, we're, and we are creators of entertainment. And, and this is Mike, by the way. I realize Mike. that you guys sound exactly. Should we alike. identify self-identify? <laughs> yeah, I think every time. I think
0: hopefully we'll get used to your voices. But at the beginning, yeah,
2: we did an interview yesterday for the Philadelphia Inquirer. We're from Philly, and about our show uh, "Eat the World" with Emma Lagasse yesterday, and it was Tim, myself, and our older brother Brian, who's a chef in Philly, and the writer. Every time somebody said something, he he said, "Could you? Uh, was that?" Tim, Brian, Mike, wait, who was that? So we, we do have to self-identify. This is Mike speaking, by the way. This
1: is Tim speaking.
0: Tim has the lower voice. Yes. I've, been
2: do- I've been doing,
1: uh, for we have a History Channel series that has not been announced yet, but I do all the scratch tracks for the VO, and it's a lot of VO. And I've been doing a ton over the past three days, so my voice is like shot.
0: <laughs> do you like doing that?
1: I love it. It gives you much more control over um, how the story's told. If it's a VO heavy show, and you can kind of punch certain words and emphasize different elements of the story,
0: you should just do it. You have a good enough voice. I say I I would hire him.
1: Yeah, totally. I I already have. (laughs) Tom beers had like (laughs) so cheap. It's amazing. Tom beers had a whole like side business of doing VO for all all his shows. Yeah, he did. He would pretty much. He was pretty much. If it was a male skewing network, which was like ninety five percent of the shows he sold, he would do the VO. All the temp VO and like kind of right around the time when everybody would be like, hey, so are you going to be, you know, it would be an awkward conversation, especially, you know, I used to work at Spike. So at Spike, you know, certain people around me did not want Tom Beers to do the VO. So (laughs) it would become an awkward conversation. Like, hey, man, I know you do the VO for all the other shows you do, but can you not do it for us? (laughs) And he was always super cool about it. He wasn't offended. He was No, but, you know. It's it's a weird thing when you're both executive producer create you're executive producer creator and then you're also vo talent and you kind of want to be vo talent.
0: Yeah, well, I I remember years ago for years people would say to me you have such a good voice you should do voiceover and I knew someone who did it in New York so and I was like like all right I guess I should do it so I remember talking to her she's a friend of mine and she was like oh no no you can't
2: do that. Why? That was
0: it. She shot down my dream right what? there. Why? She was
2: judging you? you. She
0: just thought I had. She did not. I didn't have a good voice Fuck for voiceover. Her. Yeah. She's
2: competitive. You I said a great one voice.
0: day in like probably thirteen years, I'm gonna have my own podcast, and I will show you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's why I'm doing this. Just, Maybe just to you'll get back even just to have, have <laughs> ugly
2: brother on that podcast. I mean, that would have been. Could you? I couldn't dream. Put yourself back then in that time. Just imagine. I
0: can't. Well, I'm glad you raised that, because I always start by saying how we met, so everyone has the context, and I was thinking about it on the way here. Tim, it all goes back to Ginza. Ginza's sushi. So we, um, I was living in Philly, and these guys are from Philly, proud proud Philly boys, yeah. and uh, from Lower Merion, which is where I was living, yeah. and was having sushi with my daughter on like a Saturday or Sunday, yeah. Um, and I recognized you because I met you once, I think at Real Screen, and... But I, honest to be honest, I wasn't sure if it was Mike or Tim. <laughs> I knew it was a Duffy. I was pretty sure. <laughs> so, uh, and I was telling my daughter, and she's kept saying really loudly, "Mom, aren't you going to D.C. on Monday <laughs> to try to get right. Tim to hear me and then put it together that we were going to Real School, which is hilarious." So then I went up to you, and you were very sweet, and um, and a friendship was formed. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I then, had no idea that's how this oh, yeah, Ginza, relationship it's, began. It's a big deal. Ginza, Ginza sushi. Yeah. The sushi in Philadelphia. I mean, straight out of the Schuylkill River it's, is just it's It's to no great
0: sushi. Actually, I have to say Ginza is the only place I like for sushi in Philly. Really? Yeah,
2: really, I've never been there. You, really you take good. dad there a lot.
1: Yeah. Dad we, was there. Dad was okay. there. And so, brother Brian, I think. No, it was or just— Or no, nephew. It was, no, it, was my, it was my boy. It was Liam. Ah. Oh. at the time was like five. Are you oh. sure?
0: No. Oh, no, no. You're right. Nephew. It was Joe.
1: Joe. It, was, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was
2: our sister's boy. That's yeah. right.
0: There's a sister, too? We have a sister. Wait, there's, so there are four total?
2: Yeah. Four. Sister. Oh. This is Mike speaking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> our sister, Colleen, who's six years older than us. Then our, our brother, Brian, who's three years older yeah. than us. And then Tim and I, and we're twins.
0: Got it. So you guys met in utero.
2: Yeah, we were roommates. <laughs> Your
0: roommates for no, no, nine months. Womb. Womb
2: I didn't make that up. That's I love been told it. to us our whole lives. That's
0: very cute.
2: Yeah. And who's older? I am thirteen minutes. This is Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, we got it. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, thirteen minutes older. Do you make him like? Do you feel like the older, or does it feel?
2: Um, I, it depends. You know, it depends on the dynamic and right. where we are. And when, when Tim was a buyer, um, you know, that dynamic, you know, shifted sort of how we interacted. Yeah. Um,
0: You had to kiss his ass.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there was like this level of, you know, seller-buyer thing, you know, <laughs> right. that there's just that there's a hierarchy there just inevitably. Which, right. which meant that
1: Mike was pretty much always condescending to me <laughs> the, um, what's up buyer what's up network which he still see, actually does to this day yeah really he, you'll exactly. never
0: you'll never shake it off even though you're now
1: i mean i, I
2: yeah i on the good side <laughs> did yeah. i say that out loud i do i do feel like i'm on the good side now. Yay! but yeah he won't ever let it go i i don't know i think the more he earns his stripes on the producer side the 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 less that happens. Uh, every once in a while, when he gives notes or something, I'll be like, "Okay, whatever you want, suit." But yeah, his
0: because, notes are great, exactly so. because he knows what they're going to say, so he's getting inside their head.
2: Oh my god! I mean, it's like the hugest uh, asset that we have is for Tim to have worked at a network for twelve years, a couple different networks. It puts us in a position where, you know, I call him the network whisperer because I've been on the you know seller side the producer side for 17 years and he did the network thing for 12 years and he you know when you're selling all the time when you when you are taking your projects out wearing your heart in your sleeve you know seeing them sort of batted around and you know and and developed and and killed and you know all the things that go (laughs) with with all the fun that that is you know pitching television shows right um you know, you get beat down a little bit. And I think that the... A lot of it. A lot of it, yeah. And I think that for us, what has become our greatest um, advantage is that we separate development and current. And and Tim's ability to speak network has made all the difference in my life and how I sort of wake up in the morning and just knowing that I've got him on my side to speak that language and to help decipher and to sort of wade through some of the, you know, the political parts of working with a network, um, it's it's huge, it's huge for us, it's kinda of set me free as a developer.
0: I think in any partnership, you know, you want that, you wanna you want have the strengths that you're bringing that aren't dupl- duplicate, right? Yeah. So, if you're both really creative, if you're both really good at the numbers, if you're both really good with talent, like, that's great, but if you don't have anything that complements each other, you know, then I think you're sort of just repeating. You like, why have a partner?
1: Yeah. No way. yeah. Yeah. Totally. I think it's like we, dating yourself. It's mm-hmm. been three years <laughs> since we launched the company, and you know, um, the first year and a half were uh, the first year and a half was kind of um, us trying to figure out what lane we needed to be in in order to be an efficient team and an efficient system, mm-hmm. um, and especially because so much of it was was development, right? You know, you got to incubate ideas in order to get them sold um, and ultimately get them on the air. So you don't really have a current guy until you actually sell something. And, um, you know, I think we both kind of settled. So, th- so we were both in each other's lanes. But mind you, I had done development for 12 years. Right. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is when you're a buyer doing development, especially – you know, at, at the SVP level when I was at Spike um, towards the, la- the last several years that I was there, when I had uh, the ability to make very big decisions and um, and people would, you know, they would listen to what I would say internally and typically I would get most of the time kind of what I wanted. Well, that's a <laughs> radical change <Right. laughs> when you go into the yeah. land of selling yeah. and, uh you know, and you feel very confident about who you are and what you've done, and the world has reinforced you. And then they
0: and then it smacks you back yeah. down. <laughs> and then they like
1: you know pants you in yeah. front of like the school gym. You know yeah. that's what it feels like when like you're a public like public flogging. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And you're like naked in it's front of not everyone. No one gives a shit about you. But ideas. <laughs> 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 and you're an idiot. And you're like yeah. your ideas suck, yeah. and you have no idea how to make television. <laughs> right. And you get talked down to by some junior executive. And, yeah. You know so. It was a, a, a really radical transition for me. Um, but it was, you know, but I think it's a, it was an essential transition for me as well because I never lost sight of who I am as a creative and as a storyteller. And, I've, and because we've been able to, you know, we've been blessed with the ability to sell some shows and, and, and make some shows. Uh, physically making television shows is what I love to do best. I really don't like to sell people. Uh, and I'm not very good at it, and Mike is amazing at it. And so that balance is f- fantastic for us.
0: It is, but I will say, because uh, full disclosure, without giving any details away, we are collaborating on a project that we're all very excited yes, about. Yeah, super
1: secret project. It's top secret. I'm obsessed with this project. We're all yeah, very it's an awesome project.
0: However, Tim, you are underselling yourself on the selling side because you did sell me because I wasn't even going to pitch you the project. And next thing I know, we're partnering with you. So yeah. you're way better than you think. And Mike, yes, you are excellent at it, but I would well, expect nothing less.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, look, it's it's all passion, right? Yeah. It's, it's We come by it honestly. We, we just want to tell great stories. We believe in succeeding through excellence, not, you know, faking our way through it, not getting one over on the buyer. Mm-hmm. I think we've all been in positions where we've, sold something that there wasn't anything there. And, you know, it, 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 it's flashy, and it makes its way through the various hurdles at the network. You get that first, you know, that first green light, and you go, oh, my God, this is amazing. We're to develop it. And then it goes into that offsite. Oh, my God, it's amazing. We're going to put it on the TCA panel. It's going to be fucking great. And then, it, you know, it's it's a flash, and nothing happens, and it's just, you know, it dies a slow or fast, very painful death. And you realize, I think in any one of those scenarios, that, that I certainly can look back on my own career and recognize that it's because there wasn't any there there. It was really just a sale. It wasn't, it didn't deserve a television series. And for us, we're focused 100% on making sure that we are developing projects that have a future and, and we won't develop something into a series if we don't believe it deserves a series. We'll, we'll make it a limited run thing. We will look at it as a standalone thing. Um, you know, it's, it's about putting great work out there because we're very aware of the fact that we are defined in, by our audience and how they see our product. And then, of course, how the industry sees us. We need to rate in order to be you know, a viable production company, of course but there's also that artistry to it that i think everybody whether you're a buyer a viewer a producer a publicist you know uh, an ad salesperson that you want to be associated with with great content and for us that's 100% what drives us so when tim says he's not great at selling the truth is the selling part for him comes from just really seeing the essence of a project and trying to articulate that to someone Hopefully, who's going to see, see the potential in it? We we both have run machines separately. Yeah. Mike Rant has run multiple
1: production company machines. I've we run, won't name names. We won't <laughs> <laughs> we, just look
2: at IMDb or something. Yeah. Uh,
1: and I've run uh, I've run a network machine, uh, an unscripted division for you know for that Spike TV, um, and. Um, you know, I was responsible for upwards of fifty million dollars in content um, for, at at the height of um, our business at Spike, and um, both development and current. And um, it was awesome, and uh, and I think Mike could probably say the same thing. But it wasn't mine. And when we launched this company, we, we didn't want to just. Get in the game of volume instantaneously. We wanted to get in the game of quality because we we had been running these machines, and we can run machines, and that's great. And we can replicate and make widgets and all that shit. <laughs> but telling stories is 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 about the heart and the soul. And um, why start this business if we didn't want to tell stories from our hearts and our souls? And so, like you know, this kind of does harken back to the notion of me not being a great seller. What I mean by that mainly is. Um, until i believe in something i'm not going to talk about it and i'm not going to actually put myself out there around it and that sometimes doesn't jive with the pace of what y- of how the market needs you to move so yeah um, you're
0: thoughtful which is like a really tough thing to be yeah. in tv or content or whatever you want to call it because it's sort of do it first figure it out later yeah. as opposed to like let's be really deliberate about how we develop this, how we shape it, how does it have legs, like you said, Mike. I mean...
2: Yeah, and I think it's a product of the, you know, I, I think of it as corporate content, right? Where you've got these yeah. big companies who are run by people on, you know, contracts, right? And so they need points on the board. And mm-hmm. and having been through that contract mentality for, you know, a long time, I, I, I absolutely understand that. It was, you know... Um, when I worked at RDF, which, you know, ended up getting bought by Zodiac, it was, we would have these meetings. Chris, Chris Cullen was our, our CEO and we would have these development meetings. And I remember when I came in to that job, um, I said, okay, let's, you know, show me your, uh, development slate. And they pulled out a, what looked like, um, a, like a, like a modern Bible. It was like, <laughs> it looked like it was like a thousand pages oh thick. God. And and that I, was their
0: development slate. That was their development <laughs> oh my God, slate. That's amazing.
2: And we would have these development meetings, and they'd pull out the slate, and they'd print out you know copies for everybody. So you'd have this book, and our development meetings would rarely last more than maybe an hour, hour and a half, and we'd get through like six of the thousand pages. <laughs> right. And finally, you know, uh, Greg Goldman was my boss at the time, and we we talked, and we said, you know what, let's 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 like maybe focus. Let's let's take. <laughs> Because it was a big company with formats coming in from the international community. And, you know, it was like their sort of master document, which is not a functioning fluid document. It's just the place that you put every project you've ever talked about in case, you know, there's a great idea there that you forgot about. And you look at three years later and you go, oh, my God, remember that? Um, It's not, you know, we often say in development that the development documents, the process, that is the development of the television show. Meaning... When you right. you know put pen to paper and you take a, a title front to a log line and then a log line to a paragraph a paragraph to a page a page to a treatment that process is the evolution of the television show mm-hmm. it's an important process that you know you, if you only have a log line where when you're pitching something you don't know what the television series is you didn't you didn't think of it you didn't you didn't like run through uh you know, all the different storylines and, and sort of ruminate on how the characters can change over time and what the arc of, of any given episode might be. You, you, you really are selling Flash, not Substance. And for us at RDF, I remember these meetings so well. We would sit and we'd put probability, per, like percentages, like, like will this show sell? <laughs> it's a 90% probability.
0: Wow. You need, like, Nate Silver in there. And we would do <laughs> right, Doing the over-under. It was amazing.
2: We all need Nate yeah, Silver really, at this stage. Yeah, really, let's honest. And yeah. it got to a point where Chris would, like, go around the room and he'd be like, okay, Mike, um, <laughs> you know, this project, let the one that is hosted by a monkey, um, <laughs> that's an actual project. Um, oh I'm pretty sure Greg Goldman created that project, too. He always wanted to have a monkey hosting a show or I'd, some. I would watch that. Do you remember? Yeah. He, he's, he's a funny guy. Um, I think
0: a meeting, uh, I was once pissed a show where a monkey makes the dating decisions. Like instead nice. of, yeah, uh, like the whole point is like a monkey could pick a person better than a person could yeah. pick a
1: person. Quick tangent. Yeah. Um, in <laughs> is it our a monkey tangent? Emerald episode. Yeah. yeah. In our in one of our uh, emerald episodes, Eat the World, uh, premiering September 2nd on Amazon. Oh
0: Prime. yeah, we're going to get to that. Um,
1: yeah, baby. We were in <laughs> Shanghai with Mario Batali and Ugh. Emerald and Mario walking down the street and they're going to eat like the most delicious uh, Shanghai soup dumpling, and um, there's a guy with a monkey on a leash, and and Mario's like, "Oh my gosh, look, it's a monkey on a leash." And Emerald's like, "I hate monkeys," <laughs> 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 and then just kept walking. It made it into the show.
0: Thank God. And
2: then like you know,
1: afterwards, I'm like, Emerald, why do you hate monkeys? And he's like, A monkey attacked
2: me once. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, that was amazing. Oh nice. my god.
2: Um, but but the you know the probability conversation what that really was, it was about, um, it really was corporate content. It was, it was widgets. It was sort of going like how many projects do we have on the development slate and what is the probability of every one of those projects so that we could report that back to our international parent company and the whole, it was what I realized, you know, as I worked, I was there for more than four years and, um, Just over four years. And what I realized is that it had everything to do with contracts. You know, they would look at this probability document and they would determine based on the probability, not the actuals, of, you know, what the development slate looked like and all that. Um, You know, how they would fund the next, you know, fiscal year. Whose contracts would get picked up? It, was, it wasn't It was the determining factor, but it was one of the factors. And it was all bullshit.
0: Well, it's complete bullshit. Mainly, I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, it's total bullshit because the things that you are positive will sell, don't sell. The things that you never think will sell, will sell. I mean, you literally could probably have a monkey decide that and do a better job. Absolutely, Right? It's completely –
1: To, to... – um, understand how ridiculous that is is to <laughs> ha- have worked on the inside of a network right Because when you work work on, I mean, look, it's been three years and I think all networks are different. I worked at a couple different networks. That being said, it's it can be so random. Mm-hmm. There's there there can there's like oftentimes there's very little rhyme or reason to the logic behind a pickup, a pass, It can be like what your boss had for breakfast that morning, you know, like I say, you know, that I was responsible for all that programming, but really I was responsible for the intake of all that programming and convincing a bunch of people above me uh, as to why they should invest all that money. Everybody's got bosses all the time and all those layers of people dilute the creative process, whether we want to admit it or not. And that becomes really random. What did you have for breakfast? Are you a little gaseous mm-hmm. right now? Pass. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? After right. someone a invested a year of their life in the yeah. in a show. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know what? We just don't do uh, things with purple in them. Right, completely. Yeah, All of there's a There's a lot of that yeah. in the
2: industry.
0: Well, and that's what we've talked about this, too. It really does matter who's in that room, too.
1: This business needs heroes. Yeah. and. You know, when we identify a hero within a network, someone that is going to be our hero, somebody that has the balls, the moxie, the the, um, the energy, the confidence, the knowledge that they need in order to navigate through what is really easily one of the most difficult jobs uh, in all of entertainment—being a network exec in this current market, where you're. Network is dying. No one's watching your television shows anymore. People don't watch linear television. All the revenue streams are drying up. You don't have your subscribers anymore. You don't have your ad sales coming in anymore. All of your bosses are freaking out. All of the you know late middle-aged white men who are cashing out at the top of the food chain who don't give a shit about you are, are just disappearing mm. into the distance as you, the middle management, are struggling just to to buy television shows and do your best for the people that... Pour their hearts and souls into the products uh, and stories that they create for you. It's like
2: easily one of the most difficult jobs You're in right. entertainment.
0: Jesus, never looked at it that way. So, who are, could we give a shout out to some of the heroes before we start bashing all the other people?
2: Oh, some of, the, well, we're working with Comedy Central right now. And it's like, it, I, honestly, I feel like I'm living my sort of like fantasy version of working with a network because they're, you know, Kent Alterman, first of all, Doug Herzog. Yeah. Doug's an amazing, passionate executive. He's the real deal. He's a real person. (laughs) He's never made a decision that is about protecting his job. It's always about what he truly believes is going to grab the most eyeballs and entertain his audiences. So then you've got Kent Alterman, who is, you know, a former producer, a a great guy, very uh, unassuming, down to earth, sort of funny in a way that is like it's just it's just disarming you know and then the people who work with him the Jim Sharps and Gary Mann and Jonas Larson and Ryan Moran and these folks you can tell they're working in an environment that is a positive environment they're, they're, they are all on the same mission to entertain their audience and they're always listening and learning from their audience and the time uh, you know where where they're sort of putting their content out there, 2016 comedy is different than 2015, 2014, so on and so forth. So they're constantly evolving. They're they they are the first ones to say we believe in your vision, vision. We want your vision. So when we note you, just understand that it's we're coming from a place of we want to offer perspective. We want to offer some of the learnings that we've found through working with our audience. Um, to you guys so that it can help, you know, influence your vision one way or the other. But ultimately, if you believe in something, we're not going to stand in the way of that. And as a result, for instance, we have this show that that is uh, actually the press release goes out today. Um, mm-hmm. It's called The Goddamn Comedy Jam, um, which is going to premiere on August 28th. Uh, and it's, it's a show that they bought um, – uh, you know, Gary Mann, when we went and, and, brought, and pitched it to him, he bought it in the room. It, it was so unassuming that I didn't realize he bought it in the room. <laughs> <laughs> After the fact, he's like, you know I bought that in the room, right? I said, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't right. know that. Wow. And this is because I'm so used to, you know, going into a room and pitching something. For instance, Mike Darnell. He's not a buyer anymore. He's over at Warner Horizon. Right. Mike Darnell bought every show I ever pitched to him. And never returned my calls. <laughs> um, that and, he, and and I say that with absolute love. I mean he That's his, that
1: seems like something you could love. No, but not seriously. At all.
2: No, no, but you <laughs>
1: but but you understand that seems horrible. This is why I do not like to sell television shows. I just like to make them.
2: No, but if you right. know that, right? right? If you know going into Mike Darnell that he's gonna give you a great meeting. Even though you're gonna have to wait for three hours right, to, to I've get heard there, that. yeah, which is true. That that is the longest I waited for a meeting with Mike Darnell was three hours. Uh, um, but you know that you're gonna pitch the show, and he's gonna engage with you, and that you're gonna walk out of that room with a with an idea that is better than when it came in the door, and that that is going to help you as you go out into the rest of the market. Right,
0: since you know he's not buying it, you know when... he's not buying it. <laughs> right?
2: We knew that. I mean, right. I pitched him for 17 years. Well, wow. 14 because he was he's not a buyer anymore. Right. But you know what I mean? So yeah. So a guy like that, you know, you you get used to like hearing in the room. I love it. It's great. Oh my god! And you and you leave, and your partners are like, Oh my god, we just sold a series. Right. And then I would no, say, No, no, we fucking did. Yeah. Right. You know. So when Gary is... Mann bought the show yeah. in the room, right. I I honestly just thought he he's just a passionate guy. He's he's enthusiastic. <laughs> he's a great guy. But I know better. It's not. He didn't right. buy that in the room. Right. And then he did, and the offer came in, and he hasn't stopped returning our calls, which wow. is great. Wow.
0: It is. That's a hero because yeah. um, I think that there's, especially in L.A., um, such a desire to please and not leave anyone feeling badly.
1: Yeah. Where
0: I'm like, just say no. Like, yeah. I would so much rather you pass to my face than make me spend three hours on a treatment that I didn't have to write or, you know, yeah. answering questions that I know are going to lead nowhere. You know,
1: like, just yeah. say no. Yeah, You're not we're grownups. Like, yeah, we're we, we can, we can handle it. it. Mm-hmm. The um yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, I think that's like the best example of you know an heroic kind of <laughs> yeah. executive. Um, what's interesting about that reference is, you know, these are guys that don't come from unscripted mm. primarily; they come from scripted. So they're they are able to recognize that when you diffuse the powers of the creative, um, and the creative process, you cease being um, successful. And I think that's kind of one of the fundamental reasons why the unscripted uh, industry at large is struggling so in such a big way right now is we have so many folks who ju- have grown up in a system that's almost abusive, um, where it's, you degrade the, the, the producers who are coming in, and you put them in a, in a system of, um, of degradation and disrespect. And I think uh, when we encounter executives like Gary... Uh, Or like Kevin Kaye at Spike TV or um, Russ McCarroll um, and John Verhoff at History who we're working with right now or Tracy Lentz at Amazon, which is a whole other category, by the way, which we have to talk about. We definitely need to get into that. You know, these are people who respect creative creative minds and respect visionaries. And if you're not buying from people like that, then you're a shitty buyer, first of all. And if you're abusive towards the people that you buy television shows from, then you're a shitty buyer. And why do I know this? Because I was probably a shitty buyer for a couple of years in there. Um, and I probably tapped into that kind of problem, uh, that problematic kind of relationship between execs and 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 producers and um and, and on the other side of it, I realized my most successful times at Spike TV as a buyer were when I was able to respect the people that I was working with. And I wasn't getting caught up in the, the, the feedback loop of negativity and meanness and degradation.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of that, especially on the corporate side. Production company, network, whatever it is, is that institutionalized feeling where you spend, you know, I, I saw this a lot when I... Uh, had former jobs. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But where a lot of the conversation on a daily basis revolved around the frustration and the general malaise of the workforce that we're <laughs> creative in it. We make right. entertainment.
0: It should be fun. It should be. It really <laughs>
2: right. should. And, yeah. and that we try to, you know, um, create that type of atmosphere at Ugly Brother. Because we work with creatives. Like, yeah. we, this is our canvas and we are trying – not only do we offer this canvas to other people, to people who, who work with us, but we are tr- – we're, we're painting it as we go with the people that we work with. Another great example of somebody who's an awesome leader and, and is finding tremendous success is Gina McCarthy at FYI. FYI, right? You look at Pivot, which just closed. By Pivot. By Pivot. R.I.P. And you look at FYI. Yeah, both right, these both are you know were fledgling networks at the same time, right? One of them had one of the biggest hits in cable in the last ten years. Married at first sight. Married at first sight from Chris Colin my former yes, boss. Yes, yes. A brilliant format. Yep. Executed so well. So well. provocative title that when you get into the the meat of it, you understand that it's actually a love story, and it's and it's it's it, there's wish fulfillment that makes you think about your own relationship. It they. Because of the format, which came from an international uh, uh, creator, you know, they had built in all of this brilliant uh, methodology around, you know, how to, you know, position the participants on the show to actually find love. Yeah. Right. That right. Was, was their completely mission
0: scientific.
2: It's like what Carbone said on the pod on your yeah. podcast um, about The Bachelor. If yeah. you don't believe in the love story. Right. There's no show. There's no show. Th- they believe in the love story and and Gina McCarthy she runs a ship over there that is not fear-based she is employing people in a in a in a, a, a inclusive and positive fundamentally positive environment where she wants them to you know put themselves out there without feeling like they're going to lose their job because of it and that is the creative sweet spot. It's where you find hits. If you are making arbitrary rules, and if you are saying this, you know, we don't do purple on our network, then you're you're never going to f- that hit is going to come in your door, and because it's purple, it's going to go right out to your competition. Yeah, it's, did that it, ever happen to you, Tim? Yeah, I mean
1: the uh, well, creativity is a vulnerable sport. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah, like well um, to be. Uh, you have to be open, you have to open open up all that you are and you, all of the experiences of your life so that you can be as raw as possible with whatever material you're you, you're presented with. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is as important on the creator side as it is on the buyer side. Um, when you go in with a set of rigid rules, um, you lose, so because it's such a vulnerable, um, uh, uh, a vulnerable relationship um, that you have with the ideas and with the, between the buyer and the seller and the container of pitching a show, um, it's important that you create a space of safety, I think, for, um, for those with whom you're collaborating. And when you don't create a space of safety – um, your collaborators start to feel beaten down and they cease being creative.
0: So as an example, like in other words, what, not telling them about what the network said about something? Like what do you mean exactly?
1: What I mean by that is um, it comes back to the hero, right? Because the network exec, so we as producers aren't involved in the daily machine of right. the network. Any- I-, I was. I know what those conversations look like. Um, But I'm no longer a part of those conversations on a daily basis. So I am at the mercy of my executive. And so when uh, my executive um, goes into a conversation with his or her boss and that boss gets really aggressive at my executive and my executive then reflects that aggression back at me, it shuts down the safety of the relationship. Right. Right. I'm not, I, and there's no easy way to, to to deal with all of this stuff, right? Because one bad person at the top of the food chain ruins everything, period. Mm-hmm. End of story.
0: Well, it uh-huh. shakes everyone's faith. I think that's the main thing that it does. Is yeah. like you all thought you had this momentum and things were going great and every, you know, and then it's, well, that's not what we were expecting or that, you know, it's, it is, it's like your mom saying, you know, she hates your outfit or something. Yeah. And like it can shut you down in a way that. Because yeah. you are raw. I mean, I think you said it really well. You're so vulnerable when you're creating. I mean, what we do is different. It's not like curing cancer, as we say, but it is art to an extent. Um, you know, I mean, you like to think of it like that. I, well,
2: I, there's a degree of, um, of, of a void that you as a yeah. uh, creator have to fill, right? And so, like, I went to journalism school at Penn State, and my uh, journalism professor told me, your job as a writer is to make the blind man see. That's very difficult when you <laughs> think about that. It's nearly impossible and that was his point. Yeah it's it's I think the blindness of um, pitching a television show is because there's literally millions of dollars at stake in that scenario. In journalism, you're writing an article, because you were the witness, mm-hmm. you were working with the people who you're interviewing to craft this story and be as truthful and honest as you, you can be. This was in the '90s when journalism was actually truthful, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, but you, know, when you're pitching a television show, it's really all on you. you. know You have to make that blind man see, that blind woman see. And you know, at, if, if you're getting kicked down, in that environment, it's easy to become disillusioned and uninspired and, and and frustrated with it, especially when you're the longer you're in the business, you have responsibilities, you right. you know, have a family, yeah. you have bills to pay. You know, and
0: it's changing, and it's a moving target.
2: We, we, we love a guy named Tim Ferriss.
0: Yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got yeah. a great podcast. Nine-minute everything or yeah, six-minute four, Four-hour four hour work, work week. He can do everything in, like, a second. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And
1: he's got a principle called the 80-20 principle, right. and it talks about um, 20% of your workload causes 80% of your problems. and so <laughs> That's interesting. And, and that can be applied to your clients, right? So 20% of the networks that you pitch to uh, are causing 80% of your problems. Mm. So they're giving you $10,000 when you need 50. Right. Uh, they're stringing you out for a year and a half. They're treating you hor- horribly. You you get that, like, you know, the, the hair on the back of your neck stands up when you see that they're calling for you or right. that an email comes in. <laughs> we all know like, this so yeah, well. We know that right. And they're just, like, fear-based yeah. and nasty yeah. and mean. I say fuck them. I say don't pitch those people. Yeah. Well, well I say let those people those wither people away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean they know who they are and they're actually getting excised from our industry as and we're we come in
0: for you. Yeah, as they should. They definitely. should go away. Yeah, yeah, this no, is not I a nasty business. This right. should be a fun business. It should be fun and, and why wouldn't you incentivize the people who are making the widgets to do a good job for you? Like you're not making it. There's no internal production anymore.
2: Yeah. Well that's it right there. I mean I think <laughs> right. you know, there's a culture of of overnoting within our creative community. With our network partners, that is the the root of all evil. It it, it truly is. You know, I mean, if, if you just look at it logically, right? L- let's just map this out, right? You are a network. Uh, you you buy a show from a producer whose you know sole purpose is to make that show great, <laughs> and then you put an executive usually somewhere in the middle of the road, oftentimes without any real producing experience. Yes. Then th- then it's their responsibility to note your show when you are dedicated to it. You're there at three in the morning. <laughs> You've hired every single person. You know where all the bodies are buried. And there's someone in, you know, the proverbial ivory tower who's, you know, trying to note this episode. Um in a very disjointed way, right? So they've got 15 calls coming in. I mean, all network executives are overworked, in my opinion. They're, yes. They're Absolutely. Aw- and I,
0: oh, it's crazy. And I don't it's, – it's it awful. definitely is an issue. Yeah, no, I, huge issue. And some more than others that you're like, by the how, way, how is that even possible that you're doing 25 cuts tonight? But yes.
2: this is why, though,
1: because, that, because the system around them has encouraged them to overnote, yeah, they are uh, now overnoting <laughs> far too many projects. So yeah. not only are you – not only do you have too many projects, but now you are – Overworking each of those projects. So it, 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 it's. Well, yeah, this.
0: that's part of it. But I also just think there's a shit ton of TV between pilots, presentations, and series. You know, there just aren't enough executives, yes. right? They're not going to make that budget to have. So they're just going to be like, well, you'll do it. You I mean, right. that's why I could never do that. Like, yeah. I could never run current. I could never at a, a network because you're literally, your eyeballs are falling out of your head from noting things Well, the, the
2: best notes from the people who succeed in that job yeah. running current or running a network yeah. or whatever it is, are they come in the form of one or two <laughs> sentences, yeah, yeah. not pages upon pages. Right, right. No, I've never gotten pages upon pages of notes from a network that improved the cut. I was going to ask you. that. Never once. Yeah. It's the the notes that come in that improve the cut are the ones that are so valuable to us and that we really crave, which is that bird's eye view, that perspective, mm-hmm. because we're living in it every day. Right.
0: Like, here's an overall note to think about. Yes. Yeah.
2: And again, Comedy Central has been great. Yeah. History Channel has been great. You know, Amazon has been great. Like, it's it's that the idea of when somebody comes in and says, "Okay, this was this is supposed to be funny," right? And you go, oh shit.
0: We really missed the mark on that. You no. told, like, <laughs> oh
2: my God, I can't believe. Like, we've been right. going infotainment right. this whole time. Right. Like, you know, we've been deliberately writing yeah. and researching and providing all this stuff. But then you come and you watch it and, and you go, hey, I bought a funny show. So, right. like, Can my note is make, it make me laugh <laughs> right. too. Yeah. That's a great note. Yeah. You know? And the best um, <clears throat> network heads, the best executives are the ones who, who give two or three notes. Yeah. And, and that affects real change within the ranks. And it's not demoralizing. You know, what is demoralizing is when you get pages upon pages of notes that you then have to sit with your team and, and, and interpret. And then you have to sort of like position it to the rest of the team without – putting them in a place of like complete depression <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because getting that first cut out right. is the most difficult yeah. part of yeah. any television show, Like getting that first cut out and it's it, countless hours and, you know, and, and you're, you're, you're beat down and you're tired yeah. and all that. And then you put it out there and you go, don't hate me. Yeah. And then they come right. back and they go, yeah, it's, uh, um, right. mediocre. And here's 15 pages. Uh, I know. Why?
0: Um, well, someone on the podcast, I'm spacing on who it was, said that uh, the famous story about Craig Peligian sending the rough cut back after, like, five different rounds of notes. Mm-hmm. He just sent the original rough cut. They're like, oh, this is great. Perfect. Right. Yep. <laughs> like, I, classic.
1: I have a, a, a an interesting story, again, about Tom Beers. Um, we were at Spike, and we had a show called A Thousand Ways to Die. And Jesse James, right? No, it was, uh, it was yeah. a modular show, seven short films, basically, per half hour, that basically— Eventually became a show where you unpack in a comedic way, kind of the science of death. Got it. It was macabre very. And, and very interesting and infotainment-y. But the original version of the show was very. Um, it lacked that kind of science perspective. It was almost all comedy, mm-hmm. and it felt too. It felt too light, and um, so we sent around old Spike. A, it was old Spike, <laughs> <laughs> so we sent a round of notes, and there were. This was executives. Who shall remain nameless around me. Uh, but I was involved in this as well. Requ- a, the requirement uh, uh, foisted upon me was that we would, is that a word? Would uh, We would, we had to give these notes as written. And so I, uh, this was, you know, nine, nine years ago. What do you or something. mean by that? Yeah, I don't care. So the anger and the vitriol of the notes. Um, the capital letters and the exclamation points and like, oh. what are you thinking?s <laughs> okay. And like, you have to oh, say them out loud. Give them as written, right. right? And the notes, if you were to remove all the vitriol and the meanness, were um, were actually good notes. They were basically increase the infotainment. Yeah. But you could just say increase the infotainment. Right. You don't have to say it in all those nasty right, ways. Right. So, right. So right. so I'm at my bachelor party, and uh. I'm about to tap the keg, and I was required to send these notes out like four hours earlier, right? Oh Trying to get a hold of Tom. He's in like the Bering Sea or something. <laughs> right. And um, it's, you know, he yeah, he's windblown right. and, you know, and um, couldn't get a hold of him. And uh, and I was required to press send on this email that I was very uncomfortable with. Yeah, I press send. I'm about to tap the keg at my bachelor party. Yeah. I'm like, I'm gonna look at my Blackberry. This is how long ago it was out yeah. of Blackberry. I'm gonna look at my Blackberry one last time. I get in my inbox one email from Tom Beers with two words and a period. I quit.
0: I love
2: it. Yeah.
1: And that's the shit that needs to happen more in our yeah. business. Unfortunately, we can't afford it right now. Yeah, we don't all have <laughs> uh you exactly. know tens Tom of millions. Beers money. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh God, I would love the day to be able to write that.
1: Yeah, but that's like what's yeah. awesome about Tom Beers Good and story. you know and and by the way, that was a huge hit. After that, right? It was a big hit, a big yeah. successful show. And by Thanks the way, to your because notes. of a, a collaborative, <laughs> yeah, it was all because of us. Yeah, yeah. but it was like,
0: yeah.
1: why do we need that other layer? Right. of Right. Why meanness? do you think
0: it's there? Why is that there?
1: Fear. Uh, I think we uh, let's go Frustration, back. Frustration. Right? Maybe. Here's why it's there, in my personal opinion. When you look at the scripted industry, you look at one-hour dramas, half-hour sitcoms, single-camera, multi-camera, whatever. Yeah. You look at sketch. You these are genres that have been around forever. You look at what mm. has been defined as alternative, which, by the way, in and of itself is an offensive word for what We're we alt. do. Yeah, <laughs> but it's this like container for right. talk shows and game shows right. and uh, unscripted docu series and partially scripted or mostly scripted docu series and all this stuff. Right, right. different styles yeah. of storytelling all of which being executed by a grab bag of producers who weren't trained within the systems of one-hour dramas, half-hour sitcoms. There's a way to do one-hour dramas yeah. that helps you kind of bridge the gap between the know and the don't know. <laughs> right. How to do this, right?
0: Right? right. Ours is a big grab bag.
1: So many people don't, just fundamentally don't know how to tell stories. Yeah. And, that, by the way, that's on the producer side, and that is on the network side. Mm-hmm. And I think that... I think that's changing. It's changing over the past couple of years as you've had premium buyers like Netflix come into the equation, and and I think people like History Channel and Comedy Central buying more unscripted, uh, and Amazon, of course. Um, but that's the foundation of our of our business. Are people that are don't really know what they're doing because they come from talk and now they're doing a docu series.
0: Right. Oh yeah, right? I experienced that, but. That's going to go down a rabbit hole. We don't want to go into oh, yeah. <laughs> off
2: uh, off mic. I think that the volume of unscripted too. Right, like let's not forget why yeah. reality shows came about. It was to replace extremely expensive scripted shows that failed mid season. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so like, yeah. we're let's so, be honest. Let's, we're starting from a <laughs> right. place of like you're kind <laughs> the of the step red-headed stepchild, step right? <laughs> right? Like you're not you're not like a you're not premium. Yeah, and so I think that. Um, You know, that combined with, uh, you know, a a lot of success. Like when you have volume, a lot of people have failed up because they had a lot of volume. It wasn't necessarily due to their skills and their guidance. It was a lot of it was lucky. Mm -hmm. And we all I mean, I I, I want to be lucky. (laughs) Throw me some luck. Like (laughs) I'll take luck. I'll take whatever. Like I don't care if it's luck or skill. Just right. you know, greenlight right. my series and right. let me tell that story. But <laughs> um, but I think there's been a lot of um, upward momentum uh, due to the wrong sort of um, you know reasons, right? Like people who have you know they oh I was on Duck Dynasty. We've se- we saw that a lot. Like I was the director for Duck Dynasty. Right. Well, okay, there was like. Twelve different directors, <laughs> right. and you know the way the show was made is still a little bit of like a question and all that stuff. And <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I I still hold it up there as as a, a really great example of when it's great, it's great. Um, but you know, a lot of uh, our network partners over the years, and 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 we're guilty of this too. We go after the shiny object on the resume. That person has Duck Dynasty on their resume, oh, yeah. so therefore they can direct a fully scripted reality show. When in fact, and I know Jason Carbone agrees with this, you know, that's not the case. Yeah, There are, uh, uh, you know, a very few highly skilled, super passionate, talented storytellers, you know, at the top of shows and at, and at networks who have the experience to justify their success. Then there's a whole lot of people who you know, were part of that success by riding on the coattails of it. And by the way, good for them. I certainly am guilty of riding on coattails of success, other people's visions and, and proud and proud of the experiences that I gathered there. But I, I didn't ever sort of set out, um, you know, claiming that I was the guy, you know, who was the, you know, the reason that show was a success. I just gathered that experience and looked at it and, and tried to apply what I learned from it to the next thing that I was doing. I don't think that, um, I would say probably thirty percent of you know the the people at the top levels within the unscripted side of our business really don't deserve to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think and, and which-
1: cut, <laughs> <laughs>
2: which is by the way, Trying to save your jobs. less than
1: what it was like three years ago, right? right it's and getting so better. the the reckoning is happening, and. Yeah. I, you know, I think we've talked a lot about the negative sides of, you know. Yeah. Are there
0: the, any? So I'm really depressed, you guys. <laughs> like, throw me something positive. Yeah.
2: Well, tell how me about, about
0: Amazon. How did? They, let's talk about the Emerald show By the
2: way, what's positive? Seventy <laughs> <okay>, percent. <good. laughs> of those execs deserve their jobs.
0: Okay. Good. Well, that's a good. That's not bad. No, I mean, we'll that's, take it. That's, that's, a good that's percentage. the point.
2: It's it's like we're we're there's a there's an evolution. There's a tipping point that's happening now, and I think it's. It's maybe it's a reckoning, right? Like yeah. where the the best content is going to win, and yeah. the best producers and network partners are the ones who are going to you know succeed because of it.
0: Well, and I also think, and Tim and I were talking about this before you came, Mike. Um, with all the premium stuff that's going on now and the true crime, that, you know, we're involved in. Um, shit looks better. It's just higher quality. It's 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 more. Um, it's slower storytelling. It's more in depth. It's not treating your viewers like complete idiots and having you know expository explanation every five seconds you know it's just the trend is going toward like wow people are smart and they have an appetite for smarter programming and that's great for our business i think
1: definitely I hope it lasts well i think it's a you know everyone throws this note this word premium
0: yeah, what's premium around. let's define it
1: well i think premium is first and foremost it's a it's a story that grabs you uh, as a viewer um, that brings you in and keeps you there, right? We have to be story-focused as storytellers. Um, the execution around that story, um, is, it's really simple. How do we deconstruct what is premium? We execute all the elements that make up the story really well. So you start with the story itself, you, you, you continue on with the characters within that story, um, and then you shoot it really well. You get the right people shooting, um, the show, who have a vision. You get great DPs and great directors and you get great shooters in the field. Again, this is like a wide swath. We're kind of cutting across this yeah. huge container of unscripted, but uh, but you also consider audio. One thing that I think our unscripted uh, uh, brethren uh, should focus more on, which we focused a lot on uh, in our Amazon series, was the soundscape, the sound design of our show. Mm-hmm. When a protein hits a pan, I want to hear it mm. sizzle. Yeah. When Emeril and Maria Batali are walking through a park in Shanghai, I want to hear leaves rustling. I want to hear footsteps. Um, these are things that bring the quality of the story yeah. from a place of 10 years ago, I was a talk show producer and now I'm a documentary yeah. producer to the land of, great, now I'm a freaking storyteller and yeah. I deserve awards and Emmys and I can, right. I can be in the conversation around with, with the same people who are executing really high quality scripted content.
0: I was just going to say that, that I think we're borrowing from scripted, and that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Because definitely. even just the audio stuff, I mean, that just reminds me of a movie or of a really good scripted show. It's true. Yeah. And sure. there's
2: such great, there's so many super uh, talented editors out there, too. And yeah. I think they're really unsung because of the hard work that they put in. But when we all, every single, um, whether it's a sales reel or a special or a series that we make, we ask ourselves what is the visual language of this show or this tape or, and what is the audio language? You know, how do we deliver that experience that's unique to this, you know, to this episode or to this series? And, and, and it really, it makes, it's a great conversation, Matt, yeah. right? Like you sit around, and you go, yeah. Oh, you know, as Tim said, the, the protein hits the pan. Yeah. Like we realized that in making eat the world that you needed in the, the, the viewing experience needed to be really dynamic and we have emerald right and these great chefs but but we also have this beautiful food and the food you know if you look at food porn um what turns it from like really attractive to almost like orgasmic right. is the sound yes you know, you can't deliver the smell or the taste yeah but you can deliver two of those senses you know sight and sound in a way that makes you feel something and yeah,
0: I can't
2: yeah, go ahead. Well and and just as one final cap on this.
1: So where does all that come together? The un- the unsung heroes of our business are the editors. And so we had a guy, a guy named Alex Durham, um who's a uh, star. Who's a superstar. Uh hopefully he'll come back and work for us now that everyone knows him. We'll have I was to, just s- have to say, send him uh, never podcast. mention editors' names out loud. <laughs> I know, right? You our,
0: gotta keep those good ones like shackled <laughs> to <just laughs> avid. I mean Bob
1: Maluga Lugaluga. <laughs> right. That was his name. Yeah, exactly. Um but then, and you know, and we also have this amazing um, uh, post-showrunner, um, Paulina um, who, Williams, who was, they they considered these elements in a very big way from the very beginning. Yeah. And so when we went, yes, we would like a soundscape, we, all we had to say was, yes, we want a soundscape in our shows. And they took it to the next level hmm. because I'm not an editor. Yeah. But I know how to articulate my way through an edit bay and through a story. But I can't. These are the folks who are sifting through oh, yeah. and finding the sounds that bring this world to life and then working through the rhythm of the edit so that the music and the edits match up so that you feel like you're dancing with the content as opposed to it being it slapping you across the face and you feeling uncomfortable about it the whole time, which is also, I think, you know, an unsung uh, element of the heroism of great editing is how they're almost musical in their style and um, as opposed to that disjointed kind of <clears throat> um, uh, offbeat um, pacing that you find so often, that makes you feel uncomfortable and you don't know why.
0: <laughs> right. You know. Uh, yeah. No. I. It's all about the edit. I always say that. So let's break down the Amazon show. So you, how did Emerald come to you, or did you go to Emerald?
2: We um, okay. So Lance Klein yeah. is our agent at WME, and we wanted to develop. A global traveling food show. Um, we had actually identified uh, a, another sort of famous food personality uh, for this particular type of show. We had identified a set of creative for him, and then uh, that deal didn't work out. Um, so, with Mario? No, no, no. 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 <laughs> no. I'm just going to keep guessing. Um, get it. And it, it didn't work out. And you know, so Paula Dean went to prison. Right. <laughs> Wait, what? No, Rachel I'm Ray, mixing up Paula Rachel Dean Ray, and... Ray could not take time <laughs> off of that show. <laughs> so um, so we, we kind of said to WME at the end of our, you know, we have these yearly meetings. We meet like, I would say like two or three times a year to go over our entire development slate and like identify the next path and the next wave and all that. And so we said to Lance and the team at WME, you know, we really, we have great creative here. We have a passion for it you know what would be awesome, you know, is if we could get a, a big, another big celebrity chef. And Lance said, well, who, who are you thinking? And we said, uh, I didn't even look at Tim at this point. I knew we were both thinking the same thing. Emeril Lagasse, like the most famous chef. right? Somebody And someone who you haven't seen do something like this before. Right. And Lance said, okay. And then we finished our meeting. We went off to the Christmas break And we come back on January 3rd, and the first phone call that we got was from Lance Klein. And he says, Emeril's in. We didn't even know he repped Emeril. He didn't tell us that. So we had sort of identified this, you know, this dream of ours because we learned how to cook from Emeril and our parents, basically. (laughs) And... You know, and Lance brought it home for us. I mean, we, we think of Lance as a partner at the company because, yeah. of, you know, because of that type of thing.
0: I mean, that just <laughs> for you viewers at home, you listeners at home, I mean, like the fact that he actually followed up, made the phone call and then called you doesn't happen very often with these agents.
2: I mean, we we just we are so uh, That's incredible. maybe we're just lucky. Like we just, we are in business with the best agent. Amazing, period. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, our, our agents are Josh Pyatt, Lance Klein and Jad Dye. And I mean, you just don't. We're so lucky. It's it really they are an extension of of us, and you know we we do we hear about how frustrated you know other clients are elsewhere at other yeah. agencies or whatever it is, but thankfully we we uh, we have none of those complaints. So but
0: Emerald I, was in just sight unseen, like without even meeting you well, guys or anything.
1: What we did was we put together um, a simple body of material yeah. that basically articulated that we wanted. um that we wanted to do a show with one of the best chefs in the world traveling with some of the other best chefs in the world um, in pursuit of knowledge, right? That is the lifeblood of any great chef is this insatiable thirst for knowledge, so to speak. Um, uh, a- Emerald heard that and, um, and he was in. And then we developed it out with him and we crafted a body of episodes that we then took out to the market we took it to Conrad Riggs at Amazon and instantaneously he loved it. So that was it. And Went he got and done. it
0: done? You didn't pitch it anywhere we else. We pitched it
1: to a few no, other places. But we had like it. a three day window right. and he took it off the market. He wow. loved it so much that he was like, Let's let's do this thing. Yeah.
0: And that's huge, just so everyone knows. I mean, Amazon barely is especially then a year and a half ago whatever it was wasn't buying anything. Yeah. So that was I remember when you told me about it, I was like, wow, that's the first show I've heard about that Amazon's bought. Yeah. yeah I mean they had unscripted.
2: You know well, the only other press the around government. Amazon yeah. was the, the the Top Gear team.
0: Oh, but that was after. Wasn't no, that after? it? No, was,
2: it was before. Oh, was it? L- and okay. Lance did that deal. Oh, nice. So Lance, you know, had already delivered this amazing wow. talent to yeah. Amazon, which is, you know, I know Conrad was like, oh, my God, this is – and he <laughs> right. was right. Like, they're, right. they are amazing. It's incredible. Um you know, and then yeah, I mean I think we were I, I don't know the actual behind the scenes on this, but I think we were one of the first shows, if not the first, that was sort of, you know, came in fully developed, you know, they they we pitched it out, he saw it right away and, and just didn't stop. He he was you know, that's another example of somebody who when you know, he saw something and he reacted to it, he pulled it off the market. I mean it was just a, a really brilliant It was um, a casting change.
1: contingent series
2: pickup. So we had advertised
1: in our pitch that we could book a bunch of amazing chefs and because
0: well, you knew you were because of Emerald, right? he'll exactly pick right. up the phone. Right. You didn't have to make those calls. Oh
1: no, we did make those calls. We made almost all of those calls. But so, people will do whatever they whatever we want them to do. Whatever Emerald wants them to right. do, they'll do. And we right. call on, the, on behalf of Emerald. <laughs> right. And we represent him well and yes. we create a situation that it, where they're protected and they feel safe. Yeah. All of a sudden, we had our show booked.
0: So let's. So the episodes are very sexy and exciting. So
1: just walk us through. There's six, six half hours. Um, we begin in Sweden with Marcus Samuelsson, uh, who takes us in on an exploration. Who takes Emerald on an exploration of new Nordic cuisine, um, in a place where you know Sweden wasn't even on the culinary map as of fifteen years ago. Uh, now. Uh, the Nordic region of the world is houses some of the most acclaimed restaurants mm-hmm. on the planet. Right. James Beard's all over the world. James Beard Awards, Michelin well, what's stars. What's the one?
0: There's one. that's Noma, that's, yeah, Noma in Copenhagen, right. which yes. is
1: Rene Redzepi's place. Right. So um, that's where we start things off. And that was a super fun episode. We went to see a chef named uh, uh, Nicholas Ekstat who cooks only using fire. He has no electricity in his kitchen. He only uses wood and fire. Um, and then we went to... Um, Was he in Chef's Table, too? No.
2: Okay. Oh, no. Did you
0: ever see that? Did you watch that series? Yeah, yeah. love Chef's There's Table. There's one that Great. cooks outside on the fire also. Yeah. 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 Talk about food porn. It's
2: Magnus. Mm-hmm. People say about oh, our okay. show, it's like a cross between Anthony Bourdain and Chef's Table. Chef's table. I love it. So then they then Emeril... Uh, and then the next episode, Emeril is,
1: begins in New York City with Mario Batali, who's taking Emeril uh, to explore... Mario and Emeralds, one of their favorite foods, which is the dumpling. It just so happens that Mario is a master of the dumpling called the ravioli. <laughs> Neither of these men have ever been to a place wow. where many in the food world believe the greatest dumpling to, to reside, which is Shanghai. So these men went, in this lost-in-translation style of story, to Shanghai in search of what they were—they go- were seeking out their favorite Shanghai soup dumpling— which was amazing, and then we went to um, Spain with Jose Andres, and we mm. and Jose took Emerald to meet uh, Ferran Adria, who's yeah. widely known as the best chef in yeah. the world. We wow. were first time ever uh, cameras allowed into Ferran's newest um, um, newest venture, which is called the El Bulli Foundation, which is basically a lair where his brain and a bunch of uh, brilliant people live and reside and they're trying to kind of codify uh, and uh, the world of food in one usable kind of online document that's basically like, he calls the Booyupedia, which is... Like a
0: foodies around the world's heads are exploding. Yeah, uh, right? I'm telling like, you. Like, mine's blown. Emma uh.
2: cried in that room. <laughs> he cried. <laughs> he cried. No, he was so... You, blown you know, away. When you see the footage, I wasn't uh, at that shoot. Tim yeah. went. And when you see the footage, you realize that you've got such a special, uh, you know, arrangement here. You've got Emeril Lagasse, you know, at the El Bouyee Foundation, Fran oh Adria, and, and you see, Emeril walks into this, you know, sort of like um, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's like, like, a like a think gym. tank lair. Yeah, it's like it's out of it's almost like if Silicon Valley focused on food. And, and and researching and cataloging it and developing it, right? You you could see the El Foundation existing in Silicon Valley, and so. But Emerald walks in, and you see everyone start to look over, <laughs> and they're working for the best
0: chef in the world, right. for Adria. But Emerald's and they look famous. at him, and they
2: all just applaud. They start,
1: they stand up and wow. applaud.
0: And that's when he cried. No, no that he, wasn't. Oh. <laughs> so then he gets. A he was tour. so embarrassed.
1: He was like, "Okay, He's so such a humble, He's amazing so, human being." Yeah. So then. Farhan walks Emeril through, again, first time ever with yeah. cameras, yeah. what's going on in this lair of his. <laughs> right. And it's like opening up the brain of this genius, right? Wow. And Emerald's just enthralled by every aspect of it. Yeah. And at the end, Farhan says to Emeril, S- something to the effect of you're one of the most important influences in, 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 in the culinary world. And what you've done for food ch- has changed everything. And Emerald cried. And I'm going to cry. That's not something you see on Food
2: Network, right? It is cool, though. I mean, it's like, it, you know, we got starstruck again and again yeah. working on the show, not only with Emerald, but then the All people he food. brought. Yeah, I mean, this is
0: incredible. I
2: went to Italy, to the Amalfi Coast, uh, with Nancy Silverton, I mean, who's the founder of La Brea Bakery. She's partners with Mario Batali and Joe Bastianich at Osteria Moza. Yeah. She is a brilliant, wow. you know, I think of her as like the Jackie O of yeah. food. <laughs> like she just has this poise and this like charm to her. That is that seems like um, it just comes easily to her, and here I am, you know, going and we're in search of the <gasps> world's best pizza, as you know, as chosen by Nancy Silverton. So she took Emerald to go meet this guy uh, at his restaurant called Pepe and Grane, which is like in the middle of nowhere. So um, like
0: Naples, it's Positano, the
2: it's down like by a place called Vietro. Okay, or I, Vietri, been, I don't Sorry, know that. and it, but you wouldn't know about right. it because it. it he oh, intentionally opened up a place, you know, off the beaten path that serves the local town, and they sell out every single day, every day. There's a line up the street, and when they run out of dough, they close the doors. Well, they don't close the doors. They keep serving wine because they're a town, <laughs> but. <laughs> What's cool about it is everything is sourced. Almost everything is sourced within 14 kilometers. So not only has this restaurant created, in Nancy Silverton's um, estimation, the best pizza in the world, it has also revitalized multiple communities of purveyors. So anchovies, olive oils, you know, um, uh, wheat, you know, the the tomatoes, and I mean, it's the most basic, beautiful pizza you've ever seen. But it, the story behind it yeah. is something that is really magical. When it comes down to two friends, Nancy Silverton and Emeril Lagasse, going on this exploration.
0: This, I mean, I, I can't imagine more of a dream come true show as a producer. That I mean, to me, it combines my two favorite things, which are food and travel. I, I, you know, and going to these exotic locations. Are you just pinching yourselves, going like, "This is not happening"?
1: Well, we <laughs> what the boy, hell? We, I want to. Yeah. I want to do that's this. I know. Beauty I know. Working <laughs> with amazon i mean we wow we so one of our episodes is with a guy named danny bowen who's 2013 james beard rising star chef of the year right um, where from mission chinese in san francisco and then of new course. york yeah and um you know this guy's just a, he's a he's the epitome of rock star chef and yeah. emerald sees this guy as a bit of a protege mm. uh as similar to emerald when emerald was in his early 30s mm-hmm. you know just a rock star just like Taking risks and doing crazy stuff in his kitchen, and people like paying attention to him. We had the we pitched to Amazon that we we uh, one of the world's best chefs happens to be um, a woman named Jean Quan who lives in the mountains south of Seoul, South Korea. She doesn't have a kitchen. She she sorry she doesn't have a professional kitchen. She doesn't have a restaurant. She has no customers. She's a Zen Buddhist nun who specializes in uh, what's called temple cuisine. So we said to Emerald, hey, we have an opportunity to go visit this woman in this crazy exploration of Korean temple food. And he was like, I'm in. And we pitched it to Amazon and they were like, I'm in. This and
0: This is insane. That's the beauty of working
1: with a place like Amazon. They let you do yeah. what you – they see the vision. They embrace yeah. the vision. They encourage the vision. And they say, go. Go make it great.
0: Okay, so here's the question. Um, let's say, you know – it airs. Uh is it going to be released every week or is it a binge?
2: It drops. They drop all six drop episodes all six on September second. September second. And what's cool is, you know, they're half hours. Yeah. So that's easily three did. hours. That's,
0: no, please. That I'll watch it in less than that. Uh, totally. I mean you're I, like <laughs> we, we a, yeah. wanted
2: you know we we, we wanted to we we're so happy that that Amazon doesn't have a rigid network clock.
0: Yeah, right. So they can go a little longer, a little shorter. Yeah. That's the beauty of digital.
2: And, and but, you just get lost in it.
0: So what does the second season depend on then? Or a third season? I mean, to me, that's a show that should just go on forever, right? It's like Bourdain. I mean, you'll never get sick of watching it. And I'm assuming Emerald had a great time. This yeah.
1: Is, so I asked, uh, you know, as a former network exec, right. I yeah, asked that's... the question, what does success mean right. for you guys? Right. Of my exec, Tracy Lentz, who's a spectacular exec. And yeah. she's the person that you know, she's the one that that gave us the container that made us feel safe and encouraged us and was our cheerleader. And, you know, obviously not without its bumps and bruises in a first season. And she's like, you know, two months into the job. Right. And right, right. she takes over the show that Conrad had bought. But she was she's just been a visionary for us and a champion the whole way through. Uh, so I asked that question of Tracy and she said, you're not going to hear from us um you know, anything about the metrics behind the show. You're, we're not going to tell you. We just don't release that information. Yeah, You're going to, we're, we're going to say to you, um, we've analyzed all the information. It's big data, basically, right? And we've analyzed the comments online, which is a huge thing for right, Amazon. For course. those of us, that, for, for the listeners, if you want to support us, get this show, get Amazon Prime, go online and give us, Reviews. Okay. Positive reviews. Five stars. That's how we get our show picked up. That's how they buy more shows like this. Treat us like your favorite Uber driver. Right. Give yeah. us five stars. Yeah. Five stars. Done. And uh, <laughs> but what do. they do is they look at all the all, all of the metrics. They look at the the qualitative and the quantitative. But they look at the qualitative. They look at how the response was. What people are talking about, and it's basically this like real. Focus group, right? And of, that's how they
0: do their pilots, too, right?
1: Well, they, that is an aspect of their okay. development on okay. the scripted side. Right, they don't necessarily right, right. do that in the unscripted, right. Side. right? And then they go, "Hey, we're going to do more."
0: Oh my god, I'm so hoping for that call. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. so are we? Yeah, I mean, it's the opportunity to do that again. Would yeah. just be incredible. Yeah. And,
2: and it's it started in. We've had so much fun making that show. Yeah, um, and the Comedy Central show that it's kind of opened up a new lane of development for us, yeah. which is. Just selfish development, like right. you know, <laughs> nothing what? nothing wrong with That's that. Like, I mean, yeah, if we're like where take do I want to go this year? Yeah, right.
0: Where are those builders in Hawaii we talked about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. That should all be selfish, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so we have to move on to our our questions. Um, Fun. Yeah. So the so the first question is, uh, what is your proudest professional accomplishment, Mike?
2: Oh, you want to start with me? Yeah. I would say that, um, you know, anytime I have put a show out there that moves forward in some way is my proudest accomplishment because every it's like children, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you, you spend so much time and you, you love these projects. You, you know, you, you put everything into them and if they move forward, it's a validation as a storyteller. So, you know, my first show was, um, I kind of faked my way through it. I was 27. (laughs) It was at GSN. Tim had connected me to the his bosses over there. And, and it, you know, I came in and pitched this show. And it was a hidden camera show that I directed, wrote, and produced the pilot. And I'd never done that. I was a PA. Oh, my God. Literally a year to the day uh, that I, you know, that I ended up walking into CAA as an executive producer client. And, and so I knew that I kind of had to, like, fake my way through it. So I really educated myself and learned how to make a hidden camera show and it got picked up to series and I made the series that, that was huge for me. It was formative. It showed me that passion and vision, um, even in the hands of a complete rookie newbie like me, you know, could it, it, with the right people around me could actually become real. And so every single show that I've sold or created since then, I remember that feeling, and I remember that it's just you. You just have to be at the right place at the right time, and you know that you are the one. If you're pitching a show, you are the one who has to make them see it. You, you, you know, you have to make sure that your uh, that, that that your vision for the show is coming through, mm-hmm. and and that has not changed since I I'm 41 since I sold my first show when I was 27. I would say if I had to put it down, I know we can't say personal because I would say my children, but professional for sure would be you know that first show. Um, I would say
1: there's two. I have to give a macro and a micro answer. So the macro is- You've got qualitative
0: and quantitative. I mean, I'm not that bright. I can't follow (laughs) all
1: this (laughs) big talk. The big picture- um, Yeah, that helps. uh, Tough uh, TV talk. Accomplishment. (laughs) Let me dumb this down. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think would be- taking the leap from network executive and partnering with my brother. Like that's far and away the most, uh, the biggest accomplishment of my big picture life. And uh, how long was that
0: discussion between you guys? Was that like we always wanted to... Well, we're 41,
1: so 40 years?
0: (laughs) So it was always in the back of your minds. Like we both are in this crazy business. One day it would make sense.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, the the name of our company um, happened... When I sold that first show, oh so, my god! Yeah, so actually, Ugly Brother—it wasn't. It, it, I didn't form the LLC back then, but uh-huh. the conversation around it wow. was our cousin said you should call yourselves <laughs> Ugly Brother, and then when Tim comes uh, onto the producer side, people will be like, "Which one's Ugly Brother?" Yeah. And and for sure, that is how it has been. So you know, we Tim made the choice. For both of us, really, to go on to the network side, selfless and selfless. oh, one hundred percent. I mean, I, I I would not have been able to do it's like that one
0: for the team.
2: He totally did, and and I stood on I, I stayed on the uh, the producer side, and so this has been a plan of ours since really the first few years that we were out here.
0: Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. I never knew that.
1: And then I'd say the from a um, more immediate perspective, like of the moment, I would say it was. Um, I I was able to direct the premiere episode of uh, Eat the World and and produce it and write a lot of it. And um, I crafted that thing with a team of amazing people around me, of course, um, from my heart and from my soul, um, with my brother right next to me the whole time. And so to be able to combine that... uh, the relationship with my brother, the partnership with my brother with what I view as the greatest work of my professional life is uh it's just a spectacular place to be and, and it feels great right now.
0: Aww. Do you guys yeah. ever fight? All
1: the uh, time. Yeah.
2: Like fight, <laughs> fight, like go at it. Oh yeah. Really? I mean,
0: what are like the just the biggest sort of places where you guys don't see eye to eye? Like what's the one thing where it's like, oh, it's this again?
2: Well, in order to answer that, you should understand that. Growing up, you know, we we were perfectly matched Mm -hmm. for physical altercations. (laughs) We were suspended in high school for fighting each other. Oh
0: my god, that's amazing! So
2: you know, we're neither one of us is like a withering flower, right? Yeah, we're very headstrong. Our, our, our parents raised us as individuals, you know, so we were, we didn't go to college together. Right, right. You know, we didn't like the same it, we, classes together. We never felt like we were like the twins. In fact, our parents right. never let people call us the twins. Are you identical? A, no, we're fraternal. Okay. Um, but our, our our parents always, you know, wanted to sort of push us away from feeling like we were a package set. Yeah, and, good. Um, so, so that, I think, informs how we interact today uh, and, <laughs> We're, because we're both headstrong, there's two alphas running a company. When we uh, identified our lanes, we both cross over. Yeah, I work in current, Tim works in development, yeah. but I spearhead development, Tim spearheads current. That opened up a, a, a level of communication between us and and um, sort of practical daily work that I think has has you know, really improved how we're able to communicate.
0: Right. No more fist fights. Well, th- I have such
2: respect for Tim and right. I think he has respect for me and what we, we, what we both do and the experiences that we have. But what happens is in the edit bay where like,
0: <laughs> right. you know, Tim will
2: come in and, and do what he should do. Right. And like, and this is what is makes, this is what this huge value of our, our relationship is. He'll come in and give a note and I'll, and I'll be like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> like, it's it's right back to the like, yeah. what the "Fuck do you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you dick," right.
1: you know. Whereas I'll he'll come in and give a note in my edit bay, and instead of saying "Fuck you," I'll go, "That's an interesting note." And yeah. then I'll placate him a little bit, and then he leaves, and I'm like, "Don't take that note," <laughs> <laughs> right? Which may be a smarter network way. executive. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. I kind of just address <laughs> it in the moment. Exactly,
0: <laughs> that's funny. All right, so do you guys have any regrets?
1: I regret being so negative on this podcast about <laughs> network executives. I think that there are uh, – this is Sorry. Tim, by the way, since you asked us to <laughs> identify yourself. You're owning um, it. I think the uh, – I think it's a really – having lived it for as long as I lived it, I think it's a really, really, really hard job. And I think it's gotten exponentially harder over the past several years as our business has uh, has had to kind of redefine itself. For the consumer, um, I I feel – Um, I feel for our executives at that, you know, cool hand Luke, that quote, calling it your job. Don't make it right, boss. Right. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make it right that people are negative and mean and nasty sometimes. But at the same time, I think we all just need to recognize that um, it's called entertainment. And if we wanted to do something way more serious we wouldn't have been <laughs> communications majors and shit in college right which was like the easiest major right. Uh, right? The, we we're all partiers we're all people that like didn't want to do serious shit and then all of a sudden we become serious and mean That's funny. why does that happen right yeah. i i regret um I, I i regret ever being kind of mean and nasty i i of course was probably that way at certain points in my career as a network executive um I regret anything that's negative that f- that foments negativity in our industry. I think that we all need to encourage one another and support one another and love one another as much as possible and create a safe
2: container for great storytelling. And that's what's going to see us through. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. I-, I would say I'd so agree with all of that. Like, just we have to really support each other. I mean, we're all in it together, and the more great content that we put out there, you know. The the better we are received by our audiences and the the more our sort of you know uh network partners feel confidence in, in what we're we're doing. I think that's really important. My one regret to answer that question would be actually uh not doing more comedy over the years. Um, I missed my groundlings audition. Yeah, and it,
0: I couldn't believe you were stand up comic to oh, start. Yeah, yeah, I was I a stand-up
2: uh, I worked at the comedy store and and I did it. Um, full-time and I came out to LA as an actor and I kind of like you know decided that I was going to be more of a producer um, when I I quit doing stand-up but one of the things that this is literally my biggest regret of my professional life was that I missed my Groundlings audition because my boss basically made me miss it and Uh. When you miss a Groundlings audition, you're on a blacklist. You can't audition for them again, is what I was told. Wow. Um, and I, I just wonder if I would have tapped into that comedy community on the sketch side and the improv side more back then, which is like 2002. You know, how would that have colored the, um, the career that I've had up to this point? Thankfully— We just sold our first show to Comedy Central, which is a freaking dream come true, and it's a great show. So maybe that regret will be wiped away by uh, success with that special, which airs on August 28th, after the VMAs on Comedy Central. What's it called, Mike? It's called The Goddamn Comedy Jam. What's the logline for it, Mike? Comedians come in, tell a funny story from their past that has some association with a song, and then they sing that song with our live band. So it's a rocking, funny crazy one hour special with Jim Jeffries, Natasha Leggero, Adam Devine, Jay Farrow, Pete Davidson and some big special guests. Yeah, you
0: got some great talent there.
2: Yeah, and we had Joel Gallen directing it. So we're, you know, I I, I think it's going to do well. The network's really behind it. The press release goes out today. So hopefully that wipes away the regret.
0: Mazel. That's excellent. So, um, because we we need to wrap up now. Um, What are your, what are shows that you guys watch, reality shows that you guys watch?
2: None. I watch. Well, <laughs> my wife um, loves the Bravo stuff.
0: Yes, amen.
2: I can. I, I watch it with her. Um, I watch ev- all reality as homework.
0: Mm-hmm. Every right. reality
2: show I'm tuning into, it's my job. Yes, agree. Um, the and there's a lot of really great storytelling out there. Um, Bravo, including the
0: Housewives. I'll have you know. No, totally. Some I of mean, the best editing in all of the TV
2: landscape. And a network brand oh. that is so solid. Yeah, and right? hasn't changed really. So uh, I watch a lot of the Real Housewives. I love flipping out. Jeff Lewis is my favorite unscripted character ever. Um, He's amazing. You know, I mean, I would say like that's sort of the guilty pleasure, the thing that I watch with my wife. You know, a lot of the nights of the week. <laughs> nice,
0: you're a good husband, <laughs> Tim. Are you more manly in your pursuits? Uh, you know, look, I do,
2: I do, I do
1: gravitate towards the kind of infotainment brands. Uh, History Channel and to some degree Discovery, but you know, for me, when I, I the unfortunate truth about when I sit down to watch unscripted um, uh, TV is that it feels a little bit too much like work. Right. So um, because I'm, I'm, I get passionate when I watch it, <laughs> and so um, what I tend to kind of gravitate more towards is are documentaries, re- like really well done yeah. documentaries, and that informs. Mm-hmm. My approach as a creative and as a storyteller, and as a an editor and a person who likes sound design, and you know, because I feel like if we can be inspired by true artists and allow that to kind of get infused into the commerciality of what we do, then we can elevate everybody's game. I think there's a, gr- a lot of great storytelling out there for sure, um, but and I also am heavily influenced by scripted. I think that's a uh, you know, I I just like quality. Uh, and and so I want to spend my time well. So
0: yeah, now those two worlds have merged. I mean, the O.J. show the, um, on ESPN. I mean, that's a documentary in ten episodes, basically. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. nothing about. I mean, even the old bio shows were documentaries, yeah. really. You know, yeah. I mean, that's where we, our, my old company, cut their teeth. And I mean, those were well crafted, you know, one hour stories about whoever.
2: Well, and and those types of shows, I think, are were, are so fun to watch and yeah. so quality because. They kinda of flew under the radar a little bit, right? Like they weren't these big flashy yes. shows with a lot of expectations. Right. It's so like you kinda of knew what you're getting into. Yeah. Standalone stories. Right. You know, uh, you know
0: Easy to digest.
2: Easy to digest. And I I I think that what we're seeing now is in this premium content conversation. With making a murderer and the O.J. show, and
0: the upcoming CBS show, The Case of John Benet Ramsey, yes, which plug pumped. plug September eighteenth. Yes,
2: so the trailer looks amazing. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That would be my other regret is not getting into business with you <laughs> sooner.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Case closed. Um, this is amazing, you guys. Thank, thank you for thank having you.
2: us. Thanks. We love your podcast. Congratulations on crushing it it's awesome and the conversation's super important we really appreciate the fact that you do this and you're putting this content out there because everybody benefits from it and you do it great my god thank you thank I'm, you for having me
0: I'm going hum- to start to cry like Emerald. <laughs> we can
2: make you cry
1: that is our superpower not today we can make anyone cry thanks guys thank, thank you, you.